Good morning. It's good to have you here today. If you are in Kitmo, you can head on out. If you're our guest today, we're so glad you're here. If you have a second through sixth grader, uh, fifth grader, excuse me, we have a, uh, an environment for them. They do their own teaching, small groups, games, crafts, stuff that they did back there. If you're our guest and you have a second through fifth grader and you'd like to follow the crowd, it uh, looks like there is a big crowd back there today. Um, if you want to follow the crowd, they're all leaving. I think everybody's just leaving because it's the time for the sermon. I, now, if you're not in Kidmo, you got to stay in here, I, you know. But um, anyways, you're welcome to follow the crowd, see where they're going, and, and check out, and then pick them up after the service. Uh, we're glad to have you here today. I'm excited about a lot of things going on here at Journey. I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited that fall's here, uh, and it's cool outside. And um, so there are many things to be excited about. And I, I wanted to show you this video because over the next few weeks, I'm going to be challenging you in some ways that maybe you've not been challenged before, and I'm challenging you in some ways that I've not necessarily been challenged before, but I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to do this. And, uh, and so I want, I've got a lot I want to share with you about shadow mission. I know sometimes, uh, depending on your experience with people of different accents, sometimes it's hard to understand what someone with that thick of an accent is saying, but essentially the short version is that... In his town, there was a, it, it was just overrun. The town was completely deteriorating. The social structure was falling apart, and gangs and drugs and alcoholics and every I mean, the town was just completely falling apart. And so they came to the church leaders and said, "What can you do to help?" And a group said, "Well, let's do some Christian concerts on Friday night or Saturday night." And he said, "The problem with that is." That whenever you have a Christian concert, it starts at like 7, it's over at 10, but the, the, what's happening in the destruction and deterioration of people, the, they don't happen before 10 o'clock. It happens around midnight to 4 in the morning. And so they came up with this idea that they would just go out and put these shirts on that said street uh, pastor, and they would just go and minister between 12 and 4 to however they could. And they just saw some incredible things happening. And what I love about that is the imagination that is involved in creating sustainable solutions for a hurting world. And so what I'm going to be challenging you is not for a new program that we want to start at Journey. What I want to challenge you is in your own life, your own missional imagination for what God wants to do in through your life to change the world around you. And so there are many ways that that may be expressed and many ways that would happen, but I am absolutely certain that what God wants from us is to be active in our lives and the Holy Spirit to change us. Now, before I fully jump into what I want to share with you today, I do want to let you know about um, one uh, missional imagination going on within our community of someone who's taking a big step of faith in their own life, and uh, that is Stacy Hill. And what I want to mention to you about her is that Stacy is a new mom. Now, some of you are thinking Stacy's not been pregnant. How is that possible? All right. Stacy felt a few months ago that God was leading her to adopt a child who was in need. And so for the last few months, she's been working to that goal. And a few weeks ago, just three weeks ago or so, she got contacted by a birth mom who wanted her to adopt her child. And so she has been scrambling for the last few weeks to be prepared to bring a newborn into her home. And so uh, right now, Stacy is in Louisiana. And she is down there with the baby. Baby was born this week. Um, mother um, is an addict, and so the baby's going through withdrawal. Um, baby's on morphine, and today is the second day that they're beginning to reduce the amount of morphine that her baby is now going to need, and hopefully will be completely weaned off. His name is, let me make sure, I believe it's Jeremiah Keegan Brian Hill, is that right? Somebody correct me that's familiar with the story? Thank you. His name's going to be Keegan. We're going to call him Keegan. And so uh, she's going to be down there for another three weeks. Interstate adoptions, they take longer. So she's going to be coming home, and, and uh, so she'll be sharing with us. I meant to have some pictures for you, but I completely left those out. I'll have some pictures for you next week. So we won't see them for a few weeks, but do be praying for them as this is a huge transition for her, and uh, this is what she believes God is leading her to do, and it's our opportunity to come around her and support her as she does this. Uh, her mom, Kim, is down there with her. And uh, so just be praying for them as they're going through this, and we're, we're excited for them. Now, what do I want to share with you today? Over the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Numa. Numa is a Greek word for spirit. And 
what I'm absolutely convinced of in the church today, what our greatest need is not for programs, it's not for different worship style, although our worship today was phenomenal, and I'm so appreciative of all those guys and girls that are putting time in because it takes a lot of time to put together a worship set like that, and not only do they do a good job with it, it leads us to worship, and uh, I'm thankful for, for Wayne for fixing our lights, and, you know, I never would have found the problem. He, found, he was like, I think that's the problem. He went and fixed it, and boom, we've got light. So, uh, you know, they're all working hard and doing those things, but, but I'm convinced that what God wants to do among us has nothing to do with programming necessarily and nothing to do with changing worship. It doesn't mean that we've got to, you know, change the way we sit or change the place that we do church. But what I believe God wants to do is he wants to do something through the Holy Spirit in us and through us. And so what I've shared with you for the last few weeks is how necessary the Holy Spirit is. And depending on your background, you may be very familiar with teachings on the Holy Spirit and you may not. I came up in a tradition, we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. Only those Pentecostal, charismatic, crazy people did. That's okay. But what I have found is that that is not how God wants things to be. Because in the first century, when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so our question today, and what we're going to do in this series called Shadow Mission, and I'll, I'll explain a little more as we get into this, Our question for today is, what does it look like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? And I thought many different things throughout my faith walk. I I, I thought that, you know, to be empowered meant that life would get easier. That when things went wrong, they wouldn't bother me as much. At times I felt like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit means I, I would just be successful at the things that I do. Or that we would always, you know, be set financially because the Holy Spirit would empower us or somehow we'd be able to forgive easier or be better at relationships than we were. And that's what we would look like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in the church, the way we look at the church sometimes, well, if the Holy Spirit's working, what's happening? Well, the church is full. There's lots of people coming. You're building big buildings and and everyone's noticing how amazing it is what's going on at your church because the church is empowered. But is that what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? So I've got a lot I want to share with you today and I want to reframe some of what you believe about the early church and about the, the birth of Christianity that may not be so true or at least you may have missed what was really going on behind the scenes. So I've got a lot I want to share with you. If you want to follow along on version, you can do that. We're going to start in Acts 1. Our primary text today is going to be in Acts chapter 1, and then I've got a few things I want to share with you as well. I'm already out of breath. That's not good. <laughs> so either I'm about to have a heart attack or this is going to be good today. So anyways, all right, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, if you'll follow along with me, it says, in the first book, O Theophilus, do you remember what the first book, Luke's first book to Theophilus was? Gospel of Luke. He first, Luke was not one of the disciples that walked with Jesus. He interviewed all these people of what was going on, and he was conveying all of this information to Theophilus. And so Luke and Acts were both written by the physician Luke. And these were written within just days, weeks of each other. And so he's continuing to share now, not just the life of Jesus, but now he's wanting Theophilus to know this is what's happening in the birth of the church. So Theophilus would know what is happening. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, which is true. That's how Luke ends. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We're going to dig down into some very important parts of those first few verses of Acts chapter 1. But before we do this, I I want you to understand a little bit of where the disciples' heads were in asking, is this the time when the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored? Now, this is all happening in the 40 days. This is the, The disciples have just had 40 days of intense instruction by Jesus following the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Jesus appears to the disciples and then walks with them for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And at the end of those 40 days, they ask Jesus, is this when the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored? And Jesus says, well, not not right now. And then he goes on to share a few more things we'll get to in a minute. Now, the reason that's significant is it shows where the minds of the disciples were for a number of reasons. One is, they've been living a history of oppression their entire lives. The disciples did not enter into the story in the way that we have imagery and scenery around Christmas time. What is every image of the manger around Christmas time? A, a quaint, a quaint little barn. And a magnificent moon is a super moon, I think. And then there's, of course, the North Star, and it's just beautiful in a crystal blue, clear sky. And you have these huge, peaceful fields where the animals are just sitting around and the the sheep are just buying away and the shepherds are under the tree, arms folded, feet out, gazing at the stars, dreaming about the future. Isn't that the imagery that we have about the birth of Jesus? Yes, it is. You know it's true. Go home, look at your Christmas decorations. It is absolutely true. (laughs) That we have this picture of Mary and Joseph on this very comfortable air ride donkey. As she's pregnant, just slowly going from house to house of where can I have this baby? And she ends up in this magnificent barn that is the cleanest barn you've ever seen with hay that is so warm and it is just so inviting that anyone would want to just sit down and lay down in this soft hay. Forget the manure. There was no manure back then. It was just wonderful and peaceful and exciting. And then out of the darkness came Jesus. Now, some of that is true. But most of it's really not the way things were happening. Okay, so if we back up, one of the things I'm absolutely convinced as a church, if we're going to follow God into these next 10 years of our life, we have to understand more of the context of Jesus's life and teaching and what was going on at the time. It completely changes the way we see the people that they're teaching. It completely changes the way that we see some of the parables because he's addressing the oppression that the nation of Israel has been under for decades under Roman rule. Now let's just back up for, excuse me, I'm already losing my voice. That's not good either. Let's just back up a little bit. Whenever we look at the history of the, the life of Jesus and what's going on in the nation of Israel, I want you to remember that throughout the Old Testament, this is why it's so crucial to, to study the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel has two different kind of experiences. One is when they are faithful and follow God, and one when they're not. Now, when they're faithful and they're following God, things are good. They're expanding. They enter into the promised land. They begin to fill it. And then they're led by a king, and they're led by another king, a great king, and they're led by his son, Solomon. And the problem with Solomon was he was great in the beginning, but towards the end, he began to worship other gods, and so great judgment was brought on the nation. And then after Solomon, king after king after king after king were evil kings, not good kings. We don't talk about them in the church because in the church we talk about good, feel-good stuff. They were not good, feel-good kings. They were terrible, selfish, power-hungry, idol-worshiping 
kings. And eventually the nation would cry out to God to be rescued. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God rescue them in so many different ways. We see God rescue them from Egypt through Moses. We see God rescuing through the judges. We see God rescuing later before Jesus comes through the prophets. But around 67 B.C., this burgeoning nation that's beginning to take over the known world has its eyes set on Israel. Do you know what that nation is? Somebody said it. Rome. It was around 60, let me, let me double check my date. 63, not 67. 63 BC, Pompey the Great entered into Israel, not only took over Israel, but did the worst act that you could ever do. He was so amazed at the worship of the priests because in 63 BC, the priests, as the Roman army was surrounding them and pushing in on all sides, never stopped worshiping. Every single thing they were supposed to be doing at the time, they were doing. And one of the reasons that they were worshiping so fervently as the Roman army was pressing down upon them is because they were praying for what? Deliverance. God has done this before. God has made the sun stand still when we've been at battle with our enemies so that we could be victorious. To the very end, he was hoping and believing, the priests were hoping and believing they could be saved, and yet they were not. And Pompey the Great was so enthralled by their worship, so curious and confused by this action that they weren't defending themselves or at least trying to rescue themselves that he did the unthinkable. He walked into the temple. He walked into the Holy of Holies because he wanted to see the God that garnered so much devotion. And when he walked in there, it was the first time the temple, the Holy of Holies, was desecrated. The nation of Israel was absolutely destroyed. He walked in. It was amazing if you want to read the accounts. He walked in and he was like, what's the big deal? There's nothing in here. He saw an altar, but there were no statues. There were no idols. There there was no big bronze god that they were worshiping. He was absolutely amazed. And so he leaves, and this begins the Roman occupation of Israel, of which Israel will never again be a self-governing nation until the 1940s, 60 years ago. But they prayed for deliverance. As they prayed for deliverance, even before this time, when he came in, Pompey came in and, and overtook Jerusalem, they had been fighting these battles trying to rescue their nation. They had been hoping to do anything to resist, anything that they could live. But the truth was, Rome, in order to conquer the known world, needed Israel to go around the bend to get to Egypt, which was next on their list. And so Israel's days were numbered. 63 BC, Pompey the Great conquered Israel. There's a picture, a depiction of them walking into the temple of the priests and the Jews who had been slain and the army walking into the Holy of Holies. In 40 BC, someone else comes on the scene, Herod the Great, and this changes the political structure forever of Israel. Because you see, King Herod himself was not a Jew, and now he was the king of the Jews. The way he did this was he married a princess of the reigning party, the Hasmonean dynasty. He married a princess, and so he became a ruler. And as Rome began to exert more control over Israel, Herod went to Mark Antony in Rome and said, Listen, if you want to control these people, you need to install me as the king Someone who was not a Jew. At best, he was a half-Jew. And so they install him as king. He becomes the king of the Jews, which is why Herod the Great becomes so terrified that somebody's going to assassinate him. And every single time he's afraid somebody's going to kill him, he kills them first. Which means he killed his entire family that may have claimed to his rule. And it's the reason that Herod would eventually say, we're going to kill all these children that could be the Messiah. If you think, that was a madman. Why would he do that? It's because he was scared to death someone was going to take his power from him because he knew he wasn't a rightful ruler of Israel. 
And so that's where Herod the Great enters the scene. Amazing thing that Herod does is he's an incredible builder, and so he builds a new temple. All this matters because this is where Jesus is doing all of his ministry in just a few short years. He rebuilds the temple, and the priests are so upset that he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it. History tells us that he built a new temple around the old, and when it was complete, he tore down the old and pulled it out. It was brand new, and it was amazing, and the entire temple area was twice as large as it was before he started. Now, where do you think he got the money to build this enormous temple? Through great taxation. Our nation was born with the slogan of taxation without representation, right? Well, that's exactly what they experienced. They're being taxed incessantly in order to pay for this building project. And whenever he builds the temple, it is magnificent. It shines like like an oasis in the desert. The marble is just so perfect and it is so clean and pure that there's actually a time that the disciples, when they're walking through the temple area with Jesus, remark to Jesus, Jesus, look at how magnificent the temple is. And Jesus has a response for them, which is truly amazing. He says in Mark 13, verse 1, As they came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is angered by the temple. Why is that? Why is he upset that they're looking with admiration at this beautiful feat of architecture? And the reason is that Herod did not build the temple to its current glory for the glory of God. Whose glory did he build it for? His own. This is the environment in which Jesus is born. As the temple begins to get more and more people coming in, people come from all over. And there's no central bank. There is a central bank of Israel, but it... It, was, it never had enough money to care for the needs of the nation. And so these people would set up shop, kind of these little village bankers. And these little village bankers would trade currency because in all of these little places, villages around that would come to this you know, incredible place to worship, they didn't all have the same money that they traded in Jerusalem. And so they would help to transfer their money into whatever was being traded. And then they would sell them sacrifices so they could worship appropriately. And yet what we find, what Jesus says, is that these are the money changers of the temple. And those that are sitting in the temple, that are exchanging money as people are coming in and providing sacrifices. The mission actually records that they were selling these sacrifices at 199% of what they were worth. And this is when he fashions the whip. And he walks through the temple and he overturns their tables Because worship has been absolutely corrupted by the government. This is where Jesus is born. Okay? As the temple is born, as Herod goes out, Jesus is born roughly 3 B.C. Herod the Great is going to live another seven years before he dies. But when Jesus comes in, we just assume he's in this peaceful, wonderful idyllic setting and he's not he's in a place of political upheaval that for the last 70 60 years they have not been able to rule themselves and amazingly what happened as rome came in they knew the religious system was central to the society of israel they began to replace priests with people that were loyal to them for 30 40 years priests would come in and go until they had people installed that were loyal to Rome. Hence, those who would turn Jesus over to be crucified. And what did they accuse him of? They accused him of being the king of the Jews that would alarm the Romans. And whenever someone claimed to be a king instead of the Romans, they would kill them. Now that brings us back to the story of Jesus as he's before Pilate and they have a custom that someone's going to be released at the Passover. And do you remember who they requested to be released? Barabbas. Do you know who Barabbas was? 
All this matters. Stick with me. I know I'm giving you a big, a big history lesson, and some of you are thinking, I'm not in history right now. I don't want all this history. This is important. I need you to stay with me. Barabbas, as we read in the, in the Gospels, we don't know a whole lot about him. What we do know about Barabbas is that Barabbas is a rebel. He's been fighting against the Romans, and he is recorded as a murderer, which means he has killed Roman soldiers. He is the true rebel against the Romans, and the priests wanted to be done with Jesus instead of Barabbas, even though Barabbas was the only one guilty of what Jesus had been accused of. Why? Why did the priest turn over Jesus when Barabbas was the one who was guilty? Because Jesus was ready to take away the power of the priests. This is what Jesus is born into. This is what the apostles are born into. It's not an idyllic setting. They are occupied by Rome. They have a corrupt religious system. They have a corrupt non-Jewish government. And they are fighting against Rome. Amazing thing. 60 years before Jesus was born began the first skirmishes and rebellions against Rome. Jesus would come. He would be crucified around 33 A.D. He would rise from the dead, and then he would appear to the apostles in which he would show himself and his wounds to prove, I am the Messiah, I have returned from the dead. And 60 years later would begin what we would begin to call today, or what historians call the first Jewish war or the first Jewish revolt as they begin to fight more specifically against Rome. I tell you all this about the Holy Spirit because I want you to see that in the politics of the day, Jesus was addressing injustice and political corruption as much as he was anything else. As much as anything else, as Jesus began talking about kingdoms, as Jesus began talking about what he wanted to do, all of his apostles believed that what Jesus was going to do was expel Rome and let Israel be self-governing nation again. He would be like Moses. He would be like the prophets. He would be like the judges. And they would restore their earthly kingdom. But that is not what Jesus came to do. All right, that's my introduction. That means I hope you guys brought lunch with you, and I've got a lot more that I want to share with you. Acts chapter 1, let's go back to Acts chapter 1. Actually, I I really am, I'm going to go quickly through this other stuff. Acts chapter 1, if we go back, this is what we read earlier, but we begin with with verse 2. This is again, Jesus has appeared to his disciples. They are all wondering what in the world is going on. Rome is still in control. Until the day when he was taken up. This is when Jesus goes to heaven to stay until he will return at some date. We don't know. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after the suffering of many proofs and appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That is important because for the disciples, the kingdom of God is Israel, occupied by Rome, ruled over by Israel. An inappropriate king. And the kingdom of God is when you restore the kingdom of God that we read about in Ezekiel, we read about through the prophets, is that when the Holy Spirit comes, the kingdom of God will be restored. And so when Jesus begins to say the Holy Spirit's going to come and empower you and the kingdom of God will be restored, they are assuming that they are about to go to war. And they're going to expel their occupiers. And they're going to return to the greatness of David. This is what they assume. Verse 4 says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Israel, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? These are the things that we see just in those verses of what Jesus is doing in the 40-day period, something I believe Jesus still is trying to do to some degree to us today, but many of us are missing it. 
During those 40 days, number one, Jesus gave instructions to the disciples through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is amazing. This is a complete change from everything that has happened up to this moment. All of their instructions had come from Jesus himself, but Jesus began instructing them through the Holy Spirit. Can you point in your own heart that Jesus is in any way instructing you through the Holy Spirit? Now, if your answer is, I don't know, join the club. Because that's the way most Christians today feel. And to be quite honest, in most of my life as a Christian, that is how I felt. I don't know, is is he speaking to me through the Holy Spirit? We're doing on Wednesday nights, on our Wednesday night groups here, the study Experiencing God, which is really an old study, but it's been rewritten. And one of the consistent questions that we bring up in our groups is, how do we know if God is speaking to us? It's a big question. It's not a bad question. But it shows that our experience with the Holy Spirit is lacking for many of us, and that was not what Jesus intended for us. Number two, Jesus appeared to them with proof that he was, in fact, Jesus. And this is where we have that really uncomfortable situation where Thomas is like, is it really you? And he's like, here, put your hands in my wounds, which grosses me out every time I read it. But he proves in many different ways that he was Jesus. Number three, Jesus taught the disciples about the kingdom of God. Understand this. Jesus in his last month with his disciples shows the focus on the kingdom of God, which makes sense that you and I, 2,000 years later, should still be concerned with the kingdom of God. Amen? That is still his concern. It should still be our concern. It is still what God wants us to have our lives about. Number four, losing my voice again. Jesus instructed the disciples not to leave Jerusalem until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, which I love. What I love about the disciples is that you couldn't trust them for anything. They were so bizarre. They would just shoot off into all these random places. I mean, they literally needed Jesus to put them on a leash. I love that about them. Because that reminds me about myself. He instructed them not to leave until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then number five, after this 40 days of teaching, now imagine this. Jesus has died. They've watched him die. They've buried him. He's come out of a tomb with these angels saying, he's gone. He's not here anymore. He's alive. He appears to them, fixes them breakfast, and then shows them his wounds And then he begins to teach them intently on the kingdom of God. And for 40 days, I want you, I don't know if you've ever been through any kind of 40-day intensive training where that's all you did all day for 40 days. But you hope that at the end of 40 days you get what you're supposed to get, right? You hope that you pick it up. But the disciples, again, I love this about them. They still don't understand because they're still thinking about their history. They're still thinking about all the ways God has worked in the past. They've misunderstood the prophecies that said when the Holy Spirit comes, then, then Israel will be restored and they will sit on the judgment seat to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what they think is coming even after 40 days. But incredibly, Jesus does not slap his face and say, oh my gosh, we've got to have 40 more days of this. Instead, He simply says, if we jump down, no, I'm jumping ahead. I'll come back to that in just a minute. The disciples were looking for a restoration of Israel out of the hands of Rome. And one of the things that I want you to see before I go ahead, I'm jumping ahead too fast. But one of the things I want you to see is that followers of Jesus have always struggled with understanding their purpose in this world through worldly success. And the reason I put it that way is the disciples thought that what Jesus was about to do was on par with what happened in nation building in the world. That success for them meant a physical successful nation. Christians today, while we don't talk about it in that way, because many Christians believe that this nation is the Christian nation of the world today. This, these are, we are God's chosen people of today. We don't need to long for something else. That's what many people believe today. Because we still struggle with trying to see the work of the Holy Spirit through worldly models of success. That's why when we look at what is a successful church, well, it's a big 
growing church with big buildings. Because that's the way a capitalist economy judges success. That's the way we judge success in the church. That is not the way Jesus judged success. But that's the way that the apostles assumed that it would be. So if you're sitting here today thinking, I am such a failure, join the club. Join the club. Because one of the things Jesus taught over and over again was, in order to be friends with God, the world will not recognize your accomplishments. Because you're on a completely different plane from them. And yet we still struggle with these definitions of success, career, financial game. For some of us, it's a lifetime of entertainment and ease. It's the pursuit of happiness that we're so fond of in our nation. That is not how Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. And that may be, if you're frustrated in your faith, why you are frustrated in your faith. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 18. So when, excuse me, yeah, John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is what? Okay, so where are the boundaries for this kingdom? Can it be found on a map? No. Jesus spoke for 40 days about his kingdom, and what he's been telling them all along the way is, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews, which is exactly what the apostles thought should be happening. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He completely changes the topic. Nick, my kingdom is about following me in my voice. It's about experiencing me outside of this earthly, worldly realm. That's why we see over and over the fruit of the Spirit contrasted with the fruit of the flesh. The flesh is worldly, earthly. Jesus takes us somewhere else. And this is where we have to be as a church. Jesus never believed that the faith and hope of his followers should be intermingled with earthly government. Now, let me see if I can offend a few people here today, because we are equal opportunity offenders at Journey. Jesus never believed that the faith and hope of his followers should be intermingled with earthly government. Which means, the more that we believe our government is responsible for propagating the gospel, the more we abandon the teachings of Christ. So I don't know who you voted for. This is not about who you voted for. If your hope is in our government of creating an establishment where the gospel can flourish, then we completely miss what Jesus is doing in the world today. Our government is not our savior. And yet many of us, based on Facebook, believe that. All right? Stay with me. If you're not offended yet, you will be soon. All right. Now, in October, October is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Does anybody even know what the Reformation is? I'm just curious. Some of my friends and I, this is amazing to me. Like the Reformation is like one of the most crucial world history events in the last, you know, 2,000 years. It's really, it's, it's amazing. But as I was talking to some friends, it's like, you know, people don't know what the Reformation is. Seriously? Martin Luther? Nailing the 95 theses on the Church door at Wittenberg? Anything? A few of you? Okay. All of October we're going to be talking about the Reformation. And it's where we get the name Protestant. Do you know what the primary name, primary word that makes up the word Protestant is? Protest. Followers of Jesus have always protested earthly government. Always, always, always. The only time they didn't is when... The nation of Israel was run by God through the priests in a way that honored him. And that hasn't happened for thousands of years. So we're going to be talking over the next month. This month is shadow mission. Next month, we're going to be talking about protesting. And what does it look like for us to protest? 
So if you're not, it's going to be a wonderful thing. But I will tell you that whenever the Reformation happened, it was the darkest days of the church that they have ever had. See, every time the church partners up with government, bad things happen. The Crusades happened. That was government using Christianity to cleanse an area they wanted to conquer. That is what the Crusades were, and we whitewashed it with Jesus and spreading the gospel with a sword through the gut. That is not the way the gospel enters the heart at the end of a sword. Okay? It goes right back to Peter lopping off the soldier's ear, and Jesus saying, oh, no, no, let me put that back on there. This is not what I'm talking about, guys, you know. Okay, that's not exactly how it went, but, you know, it kind of is. Put the sword away, Peter. See, we still believe that we are going to honor God at the end of the military. Now, let me just say, our military has a responsibility to, to protect our nation. And if you are someone who has served in the military, I do not in any way diminish your service. But your service is meant to protect the borders of this nation, not to protect the gospel. There's a difference. They're so confused about what's going on right now in the NFL and everywhere else. It boggles my mind. Can you tell I'm frustrated? It boggles my mind. Do you know? Let me just say a word about the NFL. So, you know, if I haven't gotten to you yet, I will be soon. Here's a problem with the NFL. Whichever side you're on, if you're like, man, let them protest. We, we, have, we fought and died for the right to protest. Absolutely. But what are they protesting? Are they protesting injustice? They say they're protesting our president. So who loses in the current protest? Injustice loses. So the injustice that does happen in our nation today has completely died to a fight between our president and overpaid professional athletes. So wherever you are on that issue, it doesn't really matter to me. I know where I am. But I'm telling you, in every place in history where we have partnered up with an earthly government, Christianity has suffered and the gospel has suffered. When we get into the series on Protestant, I may, I don't know if I'm going to do this or not, I may tackle what I think is the greatest injustice since Jesus went to heaven. And it is what scholars believe was the greatest thing to ever happen to the church. And his name was Constantine. I believe that Constantine was the beginning of the end for the church as Jesus intended, unless we find it again today. All right, you'll have to come back for that. Acts 1, let's go back to what we were reading before. The apostles say, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What can we learn from this? So here's what we can pull out. These are, again, crucial moments, last moments of Jesus with his disciples. Number one, what can we pull out of that? Only God knows when Jesus is going to return. If you thought the world was going to end last weekend... Scripture says no one knows when Jesus will return except for God the Father. Jesus even says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Only God the Father knows. So anytime a person says, I've read the Bible and I've put together, um, I've counted all the A's. And Jesus is coming back next week. If you would like to hear the gospel, send me 50 bucks and I will tell you all about it. That is, that is what's going on here. Never believe, when, if you ever listen to a, a spiritual person and they say they know when Jesus is coming back, just say, well, Jesus said he doesn't know when, Je- when he's coming back. Why are you more special than Jesus? And then don't ever listen to another word they say. That's the way you handle that. Don't listen to another word they say. It boggles my mind that last weekend, thousands of people, maybe hundreds, maybe tens, maybe only five, I don't know how many, thought the world was going to end. Because some guy cracked a numerological code in a scripture put together thousands of years after the events in a canon of the gospel that is not given to us from G- by Jesus himself. Instead, it was put together by church fathers. 
I, don't, I believe churches, the Scripture's inspired. I believe that God has preserved it for us. I believe it is infallible and good for teaching and correction and reproof in all things that are spiritual. However, there is no numerological code that precedes the knowledge of Jesus buried in the canon as we have it today. It's not there. Aren't you all glad you came this morning? Number two, the thing we read is that Holy Spirit will come upon his disciples with power. If you are his disciples, guess who that is? That is you. Now, I would like to say, raise your hand if you feel that the Holy Spirit has come upon you with power. But I think we would all be depressed if we did that. Or we would not be honest. Although I do believe God does it, and I have seen it in some of your lives, and I have seen it in my life from time to time. The power of the Holy Spirit comes upon his disciples. Number three, the power of the Holy Spirit will lead you to be his what? Witnesses. How many of you witnessed UT play a terrible game yesterday? All right? I don't mean you read about it. I don't mean that you're... Best buddy who's a Georgia fan called you to tell you about the game. How many of you witnessed it? I guarantee if you witnessed it, you feel more strongly about it than if you just heard about it. Amen? All that frustration. Okay, we're not going to go there today. All right. The power of the Holy Spirit will lead you to be his witnesses in all the world. So the basic question that that leaves us with, that this is where I want us to spend our time over the rest of this month. It leads us to the question of, what does this power do in our lives and in our world if it was not meant to restore God's physical kingdom on this planet? What does it mean to be empowered? Now, if some of you are sitting here thinking, I hate these sermons, it makes me feel like a terrible Christian Man, I am with you. I am with you. But here's, what, here's some hope that I want to give you if you do, cannot say I have experienced the power that, that, that Jesus is talking about. For one of these reasons. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, understand this, the Holy Spirit is already active in your life. If you believe that, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is Lord, then the Holy Spirit is active in your life. Now, this is a crucial understanding. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Paul says, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by what? If you experience Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit is active in your life. Be encouraged by that. So even if you're struggling with what does it mean to be empowered, understand he is active. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father has sent, who sent me draws him. The only way we come to this knowledge is that God is drawing us through the Holy Spirit. This is what we talked about in Numa. In Acts 4.31 it says, And when they had prayed that the place where they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What happens in the upper room when they're filled with the Spirit. I just read it. What happens? They speak with boldness, but what do they speak? The Word of God, which is the Gospel. We'll come back to that. All right? We'll come back to that. Acts 1.8, what we read earlier. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What are you going to do with that power? Are we going to levitate? Are we going to give holy high fives and firecrackers shoot out from our fingertips? Are we going to just go through world, the world and all of a sudden when somebody steals our car, we're like, I'm cool, I'm cool. Is that what it means to be empowered? Does it mean we go into work and we go into school, we go into class, we don't study at all, but we ace the test because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit? Does it mean I will never let you down because I will always do the right thing in your eyes? Is that what it means to be empowered? So you guys are getting into this. You're right where I'm at. And I'm frustrated. And I'm frustrated in my life. And I'm frustrated in my heart. And I'm frustrated in our church in the same way that you are. 
But what I've been doing and what I hope we will do in these next few weeks together is that we are going to deal with our frustration and experience what is true and not always what we've been taught. We've got to go back and understand exactly what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, when you receive that Spirit, you will do what? Witness. You will witness. The difference in having somebody tell you about the game yesterday and witnessing the game. There's a difference in knowing about Jesus and being a witness to what Jesus is doing in your life. And so when you talk to the people around you, there's a difference in saying, let me tell you what my pastor taught about at church, which I know you all do on Monday mornings. But instead, when you talk to people that you come in contact with, you say, let me tell you what I have experienced by Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit in me. I'm a witness. There's a difference. And he says, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth, which leads us to the next thing. This is your mission to be witnesses of Jesus to the world around you. When he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, this is it. This is the meat. And if you have been frustrated in your life and following Christ, I want to tell you that it may be because you're not on mission. And when you experience the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no wanting in you because you are filled with Him. And that propels you to be a witness of what Jesus has done, which is what leads people to know Christ. This is your mission. And I want you to know you cannot fulfill your purpose in this world if you're not being a witness of and for Jesus There is a difference in believing stuff about him and being a witness of his power in your life. There's a difference. Let me ask you a a huge question. And if if this brings you to a struggle or a crisis of your own faith, understand it brought me to it long before you. What is God doing in your life right now that you feel compelled to tell the world about? What is God doing in your life right now that you feel compelled to tell the world about? Because at the moment the disciples were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, they could not do anything but tell about that. Is that the life we're living? Is that the lives we're leading? Let me just be personal for a moment. I have struggled with most of my life believing that we are missing something in the church. Now, not when I first became a Christian. When I first became a Christian, I was so excited to know Jesus. I, I had a, a very real experience with him. I knew my life was different. The world, I saw the whole world differently. I, I was so excited and so thankful that I was forgiven and so thankful I was going to spend all of eternity with him. It completely changed my life. I I didn't become a super perfect Christian right away. I'm still not there. But I knew in that moment the world had changed. But it was very soon after that I began to look at the church with critical eyes thinking something's missing. Something's missing. I remember one of the very first things I struggled with when I went to seminary that I really, really struggled with was that I was a part of a a denomination that believed women could not lead, serve, or teach in the church. My experience in the church was most of the men did not. Most of the women did all the work. And yet most of the men who were in charge said women shouldn't be in charge. And I said, this isn't fit. This isn't right. Something's wrong here. And so I did then what I do now. I go to Scripture to find out, well, what does God say about this? And I found out time and time again, who are the people held up in the early church as those who started it? And they were, guess who? Women. Which is why we allow women to teach at Journey. And why we're not a part of that denomination any longer. One of the reasons we started this church was because I still felt something was missing in the church. 
And I'm so thankful for what we have experienced in our 10 years together. But 10 years later, I still feel something is missing in our church. I do not want to in any way diminish what we have done or how, where you have come or how you have contributed, served, given, sacrificed, loved, invested, hurt, cried over people. Those are wonderful, incredible, God-honoring, church-building things. But something's missing, and I've spent the last year racking my head. I shared a little bit of this with you a few months ago. I, I literally felt I was crumbling in my faith and crumbling just in my life. And I didn't, didn't know anything else to do but to do what I've always done before. And that is just to dive into God's word and just immerse myself and say, God, just show me. And ask the Holy Spirit to teach me and speak to me. Because just like Jesus discipled his disciples through the Holy Spirit, God does that to us today. And I said, please, just show me. What, am I, what is wrong And he led me not to what's wrong with our church. He led me to what's wrong with me, which is often how this works. And what he showed me was wrong with me is that I have relied on many things other than him to do church. We believed when we started this church that the church was in many places, not in every place, but in many places was fabricated for the people that had been there the longest. And those who did not know Christ did not have a place there. If you walked in in ratty clothes, if you walked in with tattoos, if you walked in and were addicted or had problems in your marriage, you better keep that to yourself because there was no place for that in the church. The church was for whitewashed, perfect people. And I believe that was wrong. Scott believed that was wrong. Many of you believe that was wrong. And we started this church to address some of the things we believed were wrong in the church today. But I'm here to tell you, those are good things. Those are right things for us to do. And they are centered around what this mission is. But I believe there's more for us. And I believe in these next 10 years, this is where you and I, are, we are going to experience this together. If we set our hearts to it. I want you to know that this mission, this is your calling. This is what God wants to do in your life. If you're sitting there going to work and coming home and paying your bills and feeling like there's supposed to be more to life, this is it. This is it. And when we're not experiencing these things, we get frustrated and we take it out on each other. We take it out on our spouses. We take it out on our kids. We take it out on God. We take it out on everybody because we know there's supposed to be more, but we don't know how to get it. And so we try to fill that more with more stuff and more money and bigger things and bigger churches and better music and better lights and better videos and better preachers. But that doesn't fill the need. This is your calling. I know for some of you, you're sitting here going, well, that's easy for you to say. It's very easy to see what your calling is. You stand up there and you talk to us every week when we're ready to go to lunch. I get it. But you have a specific function to fill in the body of Christ. You have a specific spiritual gift that may or may not be like mine, but is just as crucial. 1 Corinthians 12, I'm almost done. Hang in there. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities. It is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It is very easy to look at people that we admire to think that is such a notable, everyone notices that. But I don't have that. You're not supposed to all have those gifts. But your gift is no less valuable, important, or needed. You have a role to play. There is a difference in believing that Jesus was real and being a witness. A witness has experienced something firsthand. Have you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit? If you are going to truly follow Jesus, you will be led and empowered to be his witness in the world. You will be. This is not, yeah, it happens to some people. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you open yourself up to the power of the Holy Spirit, this will happen in your life. This is what Jesus teaches will happen, not, well, it could happen. It will happen. So why are we calling this series Shadow Mission? 
What is a shadow mission? I've already told you what your mission is. Shadow mission. I didn't come up with this term. John Ortberg came up with this term. He wrote a book called Overcoming Your Shadow Mission. If you're one of our leaders, you should have read this by now. Um, if you haven't read it, just tell me you did. You know, it'll, make, it'll stroke my ego. And this is what he said. This is how he defined a shadow mission. A shadow mission is an authentic mission that has been derailed often in imperceptible ways. Part of what makes the shadow mission so tempting is that it's usually so closely related to our gifts and passions. It's not 180 degrees off track. It's just 10 degrees off track. But what happens when you get 10 degrees off track over a long period of time? This is where I believe the church has been, and I believe that the church as an institution has been 10 degrees off track for a long time. If you think Mark's about to go into some kind of crazy cult thing, absolutely not. The gospel is true. The gospel is preserved. The gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way we operate, I believe, has to change. I'm not the only one. We're seeing an awakening and a revival in people who have gone through experiences just like me and like many of you because I know some of you have been through this too. It's happening around the world because I believe God wants to do something amazing in us right now. So here's what I want to close with. Next week we'll get down into the deep, dark, and dirty. Here's what I want to, want to leave you with because my iPad just died. So I've got to wrap up, right? I can't survive without my technology. I want you to know this as you leave today, all right? Number one, you are loved by God with a magnificent love. You are loved by God. God is not looking at us saying, Mark, you are the biggest disappointment ever. Clearly, I, I can fit that bill very easily. However, God looks at us with love. He loves you with a magnificent love also. God wants to empower you to change the life of someone around you. See, we read empowered by the Holy Spirit, often through narcissistic lenses that believe that means something's going to happen for us. But every time Jesus talks about it, he talks about being empowered to do something for someone else. And by doing that, we actually receive something overwhelming, the presence of Christ in us. God wants to empower you to change the life of someone around you. Maybe not in the entire world. Maybe you're not a Billy Graham. Maybe not somebody in Asia. Maybe somebody just down the street or right next to you in your neighborhood. We also say that you will not find greater thrill. You will not find greater excitement. You will not find greater adventure than following Jesus and living through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe Christians are the true adventurers and thrill seekers in the world. You will not find a greater thrill than being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And finally, and this is what's going to lead us into the next few weeks, you will be tempted. You will be tempted to accept a shadow mission every step of the way. So I want you to come back. I want you to know that this is, just not, this is not just a sermon series, all right? In the next few weeks, you're going to be seeing some things happening around here. Some of those... I believe if we are going to pursue, I, I believe God is, is active among us. I believe the Holy Spirit is with us. But I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do more in our hearts and in our lives. And so I also believe that that does not mean that we adopt some program, evangelism program, and say we're empowered now by the Holy Spirit. Instead, we're going to come together in some small groups and we're going to be asking, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you about our church community? moving forward. I want you to be on a journey with me to experience the power of the Holy Spirit and to hear what he is saying to us because I believe that we need to begin to look and see what God wants to do in this community in the next few years. And it may or may not look like what we've done so far. But this is not a staff-led thing. It may be staff-led. It's not a staff-driven thing. This is a Holy Spirit-driven thing of us as a community, which means you are crucial in this process. You'll be hearing more about this in the coming weeks. So this is not just a sermon series. This is something I, I feel absolutely convicted of in my own life and in my own heart and for our church. And I know many of you feel this as well. So 
I hope you'll join us for the rest of this series. I've got a lot of important things. This series and the next are going to be crucial. We're not going to reframe the gospel, but we are going to reframe what it looks like to fulfill the gospel today. The gospel is what it is. We are thankful for it. It is our life. It is God's love to us. But we can reframe how we live it out. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for the opportunity to come into this place and to worship you. I thank you for those examples in this room that not only love you, but are investing their lives in those that are all around them. I thank you, Father, that we have the opportunity to experience your love and to be empowered by you. I thank you for all that you have done in and through us in these last few years. I thank you for the lives that are changed, those who have come to know Christ, those who have launched out on mission, those who have who have seen the world open up in such incredible, wonderful ways. I thank you for those things, and I pray that as we move forward, you will help us to stay true to your mission as you taught it to your disciples. Help us to experience it and understand it, and I pray that you would speak to us. Let your Holy Spirit fill us and show us what is true. Father, I pray that you would open your word to us so that we would stay strict and true to your word because we believe that it is your word to us. So that we don't go off into some weird thing, but instead, Father, we are following faithfully what you have always intended for us as your church, as your bride. I pray if there's anyone in this room and they want this power, they want this experience, they, they want to know that there's more to life than they've had so far. Father, let them just see, draw them so they can experience your presence, which is the greatest, most wonderful, intimate gift we could ever receive. Empower us, send us out, change us so that we can do just as Jesus did, your will and your will alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.